going to be continuing in Romans today, uh, this passage that we read, Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 21. In his book, now classic book, actually, The Rise of Christianity, uh, sociologist Rodney Stark chronicles how a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire came to dominate Western civilization in just a few centuries. It's a remarkable read, by the way. He tells the story of this ever-growing band of believers that had, to the Roman mind, a ridiculous and absurd way of living in community and of loving their neighbors. Just how they learned to love each other sincerely and literally transformed the Western world. One emperor wrote in frustration one time that the Christians are such idiots that they are running toward plague instead of away from it to minister to people. He just couldn't wrap his brain around what this community of people was doing. And so I think it's important as we, as we continue reading through St. Paul's letter to those same first Christians in Rome for us to consider his instruction and keep asking the question that we asked last week. What kind of community has God called Redeemer to be? What is the quality of the life that we're called to share with one another? Last week we read Romans 12, 1 through 8, a passage that tells every one of us that we are that we are needy and we're in need of the mercy of God and that every one of us is needed. We are called to serve one another in community, ultimately that we might offer ourselves together as a singular living sacrifice. In the passage that follows, the one that we read today, Paul continues in the same vein, but brings focus to the moral virtue that is to be the identifying mark of that community, the power that energizes it and animates it. And we see it right up front, the virtue that must, must mark the community of those that are called as followers of Jesus is the virtue of love. I'm using the word virtue intentionally it's a moral word, a word that denotes character, a word that implies a certain kind of muscle that's built over time in a community by exercise and practice. It's not a feeling word, a passion word, a desire word, or a sentiment word. It's the biblical virtue of love, a moral word. And I believe that's exactly what's being communicated in this passage. And in, in verse 9, the thing, the quality that identifies a community gathered around Jesus is sincere love. We get the English word sincere from the Latin phrase sinecera. In the ancient world, it was common for an unscrupulous sculptor or potter to cover mistakes and cracks in inferior pieces with wax, pretending to be something that they weren't and potentially fetching a higher price than they otherwise would. A legitimate high quality piece would therefore be marked by scrupulous vendors, sinicera or without wax. 
In the Greek text, the word sincere is anupokritos, the latter part of which gives us the word hypocrisy. It means without a mask, literally, and refers to the ancient Greek theater where actors might play several roles in the, in the course of an evening and would wear masks to let the audience know which role they were playing. When Paul uses that sincere love is anupokritos, he's saying the way we must live within the community of Jesus and in the wider world is to drop the mask which is incredibly difficult because it runs entirely counter to our current cultural narrative where all the world's a stage and we're required to perform pretty much all the time. From social media to social activism to politics, we've become largely a performative culture where op optics and not substance are everything. And it has contributed in a huge way to discontentment disenchantment and disdain and despair. Which may be why Paul starts there. The Christian community must not wear masks, particularly here, according to Paul, in the way that they love each other. The implications of what he's saying to those Romans is needed today because there are a lot of counterfeits out there masquerading as love, but they're not sincere. I'm betting that every single one of us has experienced betrayal by a love we thought was sincere or ought to have been sincere, but in reality was heartbreakingly wearing a mask. And this reminder of counterfeit loves feels incredibly important today because Sincere love is the highest of all human experiences. It's the greatest human good. And we cannot simultaneously be seeking the flourishing of our neighbors and loving insincerely. These two things cannot exist. They are diametrically opposed. So we can never pursue our vision, our shared vision, without sincere love being at the heart of it. Our own cultural narrative, however, where sadly the vast majority of our formation happens, and I mean the vast majority of it, is profoundly inarticulate when it comes to understanding and defining what sincere love is, actually. So it's a key to ultimately fulfilling authentic human flourishing, but we're almost entirely inarticulate when it comes to describing what it is. But here we're given the chance to learn what are the indelible identifying marks of sincere love or love without a mask. Most English translations of verses 9 through 21 of Romans 12 treat, treat it as a series of 23 discrete imperatives strung together in no apparent sequence, except that a couple of them are arranged antithetically. It's entirely possible, however, to read this from another perspective entirely. The first part of verse 9 doesn't contain a verb in Greek, so most translators basic basically in 
insert the verb to be as implied and render it as a discrete imperative, followed by a series of 22 other discrete imperatives, like this, let love be sincere, period. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, period. Outdo one another in showing honor, period, and so on. But grammatically, the implied verb could just as easily be an indicative. I know, boring, right? Big deal. And by the way, this isn't my own brilliant Greek scholarship, which would be an oxymoron if you knew my Greek scholarship. I gained it from a particularly insightful commentator. But leaving out that little added verb changes the reading from a series of discrete imperatives, kind of like checking boxes about a bunch of different unrelated things, to to a demanding and def and wow, demanding definition of how sincere love actually functions in real life, and how we as a community being resist being conformed to the pattern of this world and instead being transformed. Read this way, that one thing, sincere love, becomes the anchor of everything that follows, a series of participles describing what sincere love involves. Translated this way, it would read more like this in verses 9 through 13. Sincere love is this, clinging to the good, hating the evil. It's being affectionate with each other in brotherly love and competing only in one thing, out honoring each other. Sincere love is never lagging in diligence. It's being a fire in the Holy Spirit. It's serving the Lord. It's rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of others and pursuing genuine hospitality. This continues in verse 14, but we're not going to get that far today. But that's the starting point. This entire section serves as a definition and description of just one thing. Sincere love. The mark of a Jesus community. And the first word Paul uses to describe sincere love is, to our minds, kind of counterintuitive. Hate. Abhor in the English Standard Version. Sincere love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. In other words, love, sincere love, isn't blind sentimentality. It's not unquestioning permissiveness. It's not undiscerning support, unlike what, what we would culturally call a safe place today. Standing counter to postmodern Western cultural narratives, sincere love is not an amorphous emotion that embraces everything and requires nothing. No. Sincere love confronts you, it challenges you, and it corrects you because it hates evil. It seeks to protect you from the evil outside of you, but also the evil that's within you. It seeks your sanctification, which is never an easy thing. But sincere love has boundaries. Born in 1949, Bruce Frederick Joseph Springsteen, a.k.a. the boss. I know, after Frederick Joseph, you're expecting Haydn, right? I mean, or something like that. It would be great if Haydn's first name was Bruce. 
but he was the eldest child in a working-class Catholic family in Freehold, New, New Jersey. The house where he spent his early childhood was a ruin, the, the walls slowly collapsing, family relationships lacked any kind of stability, and rules were absolutely non-existent. And in his memoir, Born to Run, he actually makes St. Paul's point. It was a place, he writes, where I felt unrestrained freedom, full license, and a horrible, unforgettable, boundaryless love. It ruined me and made me. Love that doesn't push back, doesn't draw lines, and doesn't set boundaries is not the kind of love that brings wholeness and healing and confidence, otherwise, uh, uh, other words, flourishing to our souls. It's the kind of love that can ultimately ruin us. And so the first thing Paul wants us to know about sincere love is that there's a willingness to challenge, to confront, and to correct. Abhorring what's evil and self-destructive about you and a desire to cling desperately to what's good in you. It's a kind of love that takes guts and commitment. It also takes skill and practice because it can easily be abused and used as a cudgel. And I've seen that done. It's, it's more than just a permission structure for enumerating what you find about a person that's wrong or how they really, really irritate you. That's not what this is. And it's why last spring, when we were going through the other half of church, we actually spent evenings practicing healthy corrections. Because we want to do this in a God-honoring and loving way. And if we look at verse 9 as the toughness of sincere love, verse 10 gets a little more to its tenderness. Sincere love is being devoted to one another in love. And what he's describing here is a genuine kind of family affection as it ought to be. The joy of being with people who are glad to be with you, being the sparkle in someone's eye. Because the two words he uses here for being devoted and it, for quote-unquote being devoted and quote-unquote in love are words that describe the deep love that's shared within a healthy family structure. The first is the love of a mother for her infant, that deep affection and, and bond and belonging. And the second one is the love of siblings, the deep loyalty and commitment. So when he says be devoted to one another in love, he's saying share that same family affection. And even though as much as at times we might have and still do would entertain a trade for our siblings, the reality is that we don't get to choose our family. It's the same here. Even though in this community we, we don't get to choose each other, it's a bond that says I love you simply for who you are with all your brokenness, all your quirks, all your warts, all of it. It's a kind of profound acceptance and deep belonging that precedes and frames everything else, any growth, any maturity, any change, or any contribution exactly like a healthy family. Christian community is meant to be a community where you can experience the immense joy of being with people who want to be with you 
Have you experienced that? The joy of being people who are just so glad to be with you. They're, 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 you're, you're really the sparkle in their eye. It's, it's more than I can go into fully here and really just a reminder for us because we've been down this road before. God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. Neurotheologian Jim Wilder, he, he works at the nexus of brain science and spiritual transformation. He's written, our brains desire joy more than any other thing and joy is relational. It comes from being with someone who's glad to be with you. which means joy doesn't happen in isolation. A community of deep and profound acceptance, embrace and belonging long before we put in any effort to change is a community where the Romans 12.2 kind, of kind of transforming can happen. This is also a love that patiently and stubbornly persists over time. It's steadfast, hesed, again and again and again. It puts on the virtue of love again and again and again to that place of profound acceptance and belonging just as you are, but loving you too much to allow you to remain as you are, hating the evil, clinging to the good. Again and again and again. Paul describes this in verses 11 through 13. It's never lacking in zeal. It keeps its spiritual fervor. It's joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. It shares with the Lord's people in need and practices hospitality. It's steadfast. This is what sincere love looks like over time. And I can't emphasize this enough. This is not a sentiment or an emotion or a passion, though it can and often does embody these things. This love is a virtue. It's moral. And like all virtues, the cardinal virtues of justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude, and the spiritual virtues of faith, hope, and love, doesn't just happen. It must be consciously cultivated and developed like muscle. It takes practice. And you have to know I'm going to ask this question. What does practice make? Habit. Practice makes habit. So what's the starting point? Where do we get the power to become a community that, as a matter of habit, sincerely loves each other and anyone else who comes along? The, act, the answer is actually here in this passage, hiding in plain sight, somewhat obscured to us today. Here's why. Did you know that according to the internet, Sanskrit has 96 words for love? Ancient Persian supposedly has 80. And ancient Greek has, as you may know, four words for love. Modern English has, wait for it, one. There, there are Inuit peoples that have something like 30 words for snow. Because when that thing is so central to your life, capturing its nuances can mean the difference between life and death. And if 
love is, the, is central to what it means to be human, and I'm betting we'd all agree that it is, it's no wonder that our own cultural narratives are confused as to what love is, because when we ask one word to carry the weight of four or 80 or 96 words, we say, I love pizza in the same way we say, I love my wife. And we say, I love my children in the same way that we might say, I love Navy football. Although for Lauren, in that example, the latter would be very close second to the former. And candidly, for me, the I love pizza thing would be pretty tight. But see, all of this, all of what we love just rests on one word. It is backbreaking. And what we see here is that the word translated love in verse 9 is actually pointing to a deep and ancient reality that we no longer even have a word for. There's a Hebrew word that cuts precisely to the heart of what Paul is writing here, and you've heard it here a lot. Hesed, a word that means enduring love. It's difficult to capture the complexity and nuance of hesed with a single word in English, though so, so translators often use several adjectives today. Lamentations 3.22 is a really good example. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Hesed here in the English Standard Version is rendered steadfast love. In other translations, it's rendered great love, loyal kindness, loving kindness, mercies, and faithful love. It's a big word. Greek also has a word for that kind and quality of love that attaches all Christians to Christ and to each other. Agape. Or agape, if you're more of a purist. It's just as nuanced and complex as Hesed, so much so that it took St. Paul all of 1 Corinthians 13 and part of Romans 12 to fill out the meaning he sought to communicate by it. Both words carry the sense of enduring connection that brings life, confidence, and security, and so many other good things into a relationship. The kind of intimacy and constancy that's the relational grew that binds strong attachments, and by virtue of those attachments, character. Love, here in Romans 12, is the Greek word agape. And throughout the book of Romans, every other instance of it conveys God's unique hesed love, his agape for people, which is by definition sincere. Romans 5.8, it's the love God demonstrated for us while we were yet sinners. In Romans 5.5, it's the love God has poured into our hearts. In Romans 8.35, it's the love we can never be separated from. In Romans 8.38 and 9, it's the love that refuses to let us go ever, 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 no matter the circumstances. Yet here, Paul says, this love, this otherworldly natural love, supernatural love, this love that descended from heaven to earth in Jesus, this, this love that invites us to the hospitality of his table week after week after week simply because he's glad to be with us, this love is the love that must anchor our community. And if you're a Christian, you already possess the power to love sincerely. You have this love 
empowered by the Holy Spirit and modeled in the person of Jesus Christ. You have only one job. Don't put a mask on. And if you're not yet a Christian, what if the love your soul hungers and thirsts for isn't anything you've yet found or even can find where you're looking? What if it's an entirely different love that your soul was made for? A sincere, steadfast love we've tragically forgotten the word for. Because where you have seen because where have you seen love that hated evil that was destroying your life, whether from without or from within, that was willing to step in and take the hit? Where have you seen love that wanted so much just to be with you, delighted so much in you, that would give up anything and everything to accomplish it? Where have you seen love that will remain faithful no matter what suffering or affliction or pain it would require. That's the love that Jesus Christ has for you. By coming to earth, being crucified and dying for your sake, he's come to destroy the evil that would destroy you <coughs> by taking that destruction on himself. What if that's the love your soul longs for? And what if that love is being offered to you right now by the God of the universe? That love that will never leave you or forsake you. Have you ever experienced it? You know what it's like. All you have to do is receive it. And are we a community here at Redeemer that tastes that love every day and then seeks to share it sincerely with anyone who's willing to receive it. That's the kind of community the gospel creates. A community where love is unmasked. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.